curiosity a true crime podcast i'm your host jade and thank you so much for listening it means the absolute planet earth to me today the the story is a unsolved case and you're probably like why would you do that i know but i've only done one unsolved case and that was the unsolved murder of garrett phillips and that did really well um so here we are again part two and we are are, am i do mm, don't know how to say it are you gonna be left unsettled yeah yeah you are um because this case is a, a weird one so we're just gonna stop talking and get right into it so today we are going to be talking about the caledonian jane doe who was unidentified for 35 years so let's get started Tammy Jo Alexander was born on November 2nd, 1963 in Atlanta, Georgia to her parents, Barbara Jenkins and Joe Alexander. She didn't really have the best childhood growing up. Um, her parents were always fighting and when Tammy was a child, she would walk into the bathroom and see her mother abusing prescribed pills. Is it prescribed pills or prescription pills? I, I was struggling when I was, I was like, is, is prescri- I don't know, but she was abusing prescribed pills to which she became addicted to after Tammy's father moved out. Tammy's mother, Barbara, struggled a lot mentally and she would erupt into these temper tantrums and even suicide attempts. She once slit her wrist right in front of Tammy, and I'm not sure, like, if she got any help. Um, But, I mean, Tammy was a a kid, so, I mean, she doesn't really know exactly what her mom was doing or what she was going through. So, I'm not 100% sure on the help that she got or if she called an ambulance for herself or what. I don't know. Barbara then becomes pregnant again and gives birth to Tammy's half-sister, Pamela Dyson. They were really, really close sisters um, because they're both living under the same roof and they saw what was happening with their mother. They felt like they really only had themselves to hold on to and they could only comfort each other. Pamela saw her mother do the same thing that Tammy saw with abusing medications, the tantrums, and Pamela, as as Pamela got older, she later says that if Barbara had been properly diagnosed by a mental health professional, and if she got the treatment that she needed, she and Tammy would live a much happier and peaceful lifestyle. When Pamela was 11 years old, she left her mother's house and went to live with her grandmother. And yeah, she, Tammy was left. She did leave Tammy um, alone with 
their mother. Um, I'm not sure why they didn't leave together. And I was thinking that maybe Pamela went to her dad's parents' house and they didn't really know Tammy because they did have different fathers. Or maybe she thought Tammy would find a way to leave as well. Tammy attended high school in Brooksville, Florida. I am not sure. You're going to hear this a lot in this case. I'm not sure. And that's because in any unsolved case, it's like, uh, I'm not sure. I don't really know. So you're never 100% certain. Um, so if you hear, I'm not sure, you're probably like, dang, what does she know? Only as much as I was able to find on the internet. <laughs> so... Like I said, I'm not sure if she grew up in Florida since she was a kid or she moved to Florida and then started high school because she's from Atlanta, but she starts high school in Brooksville, Florida, and there she meets her best friend, Laurel Noel. Is it Noel or Noel? Again, I I have a way of words, but Laurel Noel and her became pretty close and they're pretty much the same person. They would write letters to each other where Tammy would talk about her boy crushes and her hopes and dreams to escape her home. She then starts to date a guy named Kevin Williams who was older than her. Um, I don't, he's definitely not over 18. He, he's like probably a year older than her and um, you know, she would tell Laurel that she had hopes of marrying him one day. Tammy's mother worked as a waitress at a truck stop, and when Tammy was able to work, she joined her mother as well. Laurel and Tammy would hitchhike together just to escape and just to explore. They once hitchhiked all the way to California. Yeah, from Florida to California, and once they arrived, Laurel called her parents and they booked flights for both Tammy and Laurel to fly back to Florida. I mean, can you can you imagine like can you imagine hitchhiking? I mean to to a to a different state, no. Especially in today's time, I would be scared of getting kidnapped. Um but hey, I'm not I'm not hitchhiking. So Tammy's parents didn't really seem to care where she was at any time that she wasn't home, um, which is pretty sad, but Tammy would continue to write to Laurel, talking about her desires to travel again with no exact destination, just to get away. And I, I, I want to be that person that just travels and just to get away, but I'm scared of everything, um, especially since COVID has happened. I'm scared to leave my house because I'm scared of social interaction. Anyway, so on May 26, 1979, Tammy writes her last letter to Laurel, talking about her plans to get married before the year is over and how she plans on leaving Florida in September of the following year. And it sounded like a goodbye letter because Tammy and Laurel, I mean, they did have their disagreements like any friends, any people do. Um, and it was mainly about Tammy wanting to go and just travel more. 
So after she sends the letter, Tammy ends up at the Rainbow Prison Ministry in Young Harris, Georgia, which is at the tippity top of northern Georgia. It's very close to the border of Tennessee. It's, again, the top of Georgia. The Rainbow Prison Ministry is a place where inmates who have been released on parole or probation go. Um, Kind of like rehabilitation. Um, You do Bible study, learn skills, or that's what I found out on the internet. Um, The prison ministry now, the Rainbow one in Young Harris, Georgia, is closed. It's so it There's no website, there's nothing for me to get information off of. Um, But prison, ministry, someone who was once a prisoner, and ministry, someone who wants to become religious and have a closer connection to God. I'm not sure, but that's what's making sense in my head. Um, But still to this day, no one knows why Tammy visited the ministry, um, if she was a volunteer or if she knew someone there. Um, no one, no one knows. Now, her friends and family have no idea where Tammy is, but all they assume is that she just ran away and she'll be back in a couple of hours or a couple of days. In July 1979, when Tammy leaves the prison, she leaves voice recordings for her boyfriend, who is still in Florida and has no idea where she is. Kevin doesn't seem frightened or worried when he listens to the recordings because she doesn't sound scared or sounds like she's in any danger. She sounds hopeful and at peace. Now, after that, no one really knows what happened to her. No one knows if she went back to Florida or if she went north, south, east, or west. Since Tammy had a history of hitchhiking, it's believe that Tammy goes on a road trip with strangers. Now, going into fall, no one has yet to realize that Tammy is missing from Florida. When is fall now? Like, let's think about this. When is fall? September, October, November, around that time, and she left in May. And no one decided to ask the question as to where Tammy is, or... Like, does it not pop into anyone's head that makes you say, wait, oh, you know, where's Tammy? I haven't heard from her in a couple of weeks. Hell, months, actually. Um, that's a great question. Where is Tammy? In November 1979, Tammy ends up in New York. Again, it's believed that Tammy traveled to New York with strangers. Um, Why she chose New York is still a mystery. She never really had a sense of direction as to where she wanted to go. She just, you know, wanted to see where the wind blows. On November 9th, 1979, Tammy is reportedly spotted at a diner in Lima, New York. Um, Lima, New York is a pretty small town in Livingston County. It's probably about 4,000 people then, and it still kind of is 4,000 people now in, what year are we in? 2021. So it's a pretty small town in Livingston County. There was a waitress who was working that night that says she served a girl who matched Tammy's description, and an older man was with her as well. 
She said that Tammy didn't look scared or in any real danger and that the man pays for the meal and then leaves with Tammy. On the night of November 9th, 1979, Tammy is taken to a road at the edge of a farm in Caledonia, New York, which is in Livingston County as well, and it's about a 20-minute drive from Lima, New York, to Caledonia, so it's not far. At the field, Tammy is shot once in the back of the head and then dragged to a cornfield. The killer then fires another shot into Tammy's back and then leaves. Tammy shortly dies after from a severe hemorrhage. I said severe like that because I I thought I... Is it severed? No, it's severed. Severed hemorrhage. She dies of a severe hemorrhage. Sorry, I have issues with... <laughs> I have issues with reading. Excuse me. So that same night, there was a thunderstorm and that washed away any evidence that could have been on Tammy. On the morning of November 10th, 1979, a Caledonian farmer goes out to check on his animals because the storm that happened overnight. And on the way to the cornfield, the farmer spots a red piece of fabric. He thought that it was a trespassing hunter or a unwanted visitor. I guess just, what, sleeping on the ground? Um, but he got closer and sees a girl that has been shot twice and is covered with dirt. He goes back to his house and calls the police. Once the police arrive, they begin their investigation. They find a pool of blood on the edge of the cornfield, where Tammy was shot, and then a trail leading from the pool of blood to the body. The body was fully clothed and showed no signs of sexual assault. The pockets on her pants were turned inside out as if someone took like everything out of the pockets. There was no ID, nothing to basically say that this is who the person is. The autopsy report... The autopsy report was done and the medical examiner said that she didn't flinch or turn around, which suggests that she was taken by surprise when she was shot. And that was really all the autopsy was able to tell us. Like there was, it was, it, yeah, and it was able to tell us that it was a homicide or the autopsy, the medical examiner ruled it as a homicide. Police didn't know what the girl's name was. They have no idea who she was, so they called her Caledonia Jane Doe. Caledonia, because that's where she was found in the Caledonia cornfield, and Jane Doe, because that's what they, you know, call unidentified people. So they called her Caledonia Jane Doe until they were able to identify her. Um, they didn't know where she came from. Her family friends, anyone, they had nothing. They described her as a young girl between the ages of 13 to 19 years old. She was estimated to be around 5 foot 3 inches and 120 pounds. 
brown eyes, short brown hair that was shoulder length that was dyed four months prior to her death, and a coral-colored polish on her fingernails and toenails. Her teeth showed that she hadn't gotten any work done, like there was no fillings, basically nothing to have a dental record. Um, So none of her wisdom teeth started to grow yet, so they determined that she was a pretty young girl um, and that her blood type was a negative. Did you know that people can have more than four wisdom teeth? I was talking to someone and they had like eight and I was like, how do you have, how, how in the world do you, why do wisdom teeth exist? I haven't gotten mine taken out because I don't have any. Um, Knock on hardwood, like I never get them, but I, I pray for people that have wisdom teeth. I really do. Her stomach contents showed that she had eaten sweet corn, potatoes, and canned ham, which is possible from the dinner that she had with the older man. They sent some of her teeth for a mineralogical and forensic isotope analysis. That was a lot for me to say. And by doing this, they were able to link the mineral content of drinking water around North America which would give investigators a better idea of where she was raised. But even when they found that out, they still had no idea who she was. A year later, on October 20th, 1980, authorities released a sketch of the Callie Jane Doe, asking anyone who knew anything to come forward. The news has everyone looking for her identity, and authorities get a couple of tips here and there, but nothing really ever came from them. In 1984, Henry Lee Lucas, a serial killer who murdered 11 women, was in prison for the murders in Texas, and he confessed to killing the unidentified Caledonia Jane Doe. Um, There's also a documentary on this man, Um, They call it the confession killer because Henry Lee Lucas likes to confess to murdering people because he likes all the attention. Um, Yeah, Um, so that's the only reason I knew who that was because I saw the documentary. Um, So they did their investigating, but there was no evidence that pointed to him being the killer. And then they found out that he falsely confessed to over a hundred murders that he had nothing to do with. John York was a Livingston County police officer and the first to arrive at the scene in 1979 and was elected as the sheriff in 1989. John tells the public that this case will be an active case as long as he is sheriff. 16 years later, in 2006, with the advance of technology on the rise, they do a dental analysis of the isotopic oxygen ratio. You know, I for the longest time, I thought forensics was just like the base, but there is so much more to it. Like, what is an oxy- not oxytopic, isotopic oxygen ratio? So... It shows that she was raised in south or southwest region of America. 
They also do a forensic palynology on her clothes in which pollen pulled from her body could be traced back to trees in California, Arizona, or Florida. Tammy had a halter top or bikini tan lines, which indicated that she was somewhere hot where she can go out and lay in the sun. Also, New York was not, you know, that hot around the months of October and November. Um, So they were like, okay, you know, she didn't get these tan lines from New York. And she had freckles on her back and acne on her face and chest that kind of gave them an idea of how old she was. And they're like, okay, this is, this is from the sun. In 2010, a artist from California named Carl Koppelman, a moderator for WebSleuth's online community, which I will have in the description box if you want to check it out, but it's where volunteers try to solve cold cases, including people that haven't been identified. Carl hears about the case and draws a new sketch of Caledonia Jane Doe based on the composite sketch that was released and her autopsy pictures, and he uploads it to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, also known as NAMAS. Around the same time in 2010, Laurel Noel, her best friend starts searching for her using social media but she can't seem to find her name anywhere it's just zero zilch nada nothing so laurel reaches out to pamela dyson tammy's sister who is now living in panama city florida Pamela tells Laurel that she hadn't lived with her sister since she was 11 because she moved away and figured that Tammy did the same. Laurel gets in contact with the other members of Tammy's family and learned that no one heard from Tammy since 1979. Barbara Jenkins, Tammy's mother, died on January 17, 1998 at the age of 56. And in her obituary, she listed Tammy as deceased, which is what she believed when Tammy never came home. I don't really know. I don't. It's quite hard to just assume that your child's dead out there. Um, That's got to be heartbreaking. But I mean, why did she never search for her? I don't know if she did or she didn't, but there's no, nothing that ever says that she did look for her, but it, God, it's gotta suck. Wow. In 2014, Laurel and Pamela got together and started talking and trying to put the pieces together. They wondered if Tammy was walking and ended up in the wrong place, wrong time kind of situation, and wondered if she was a victim of a crime. Pamela tells Laurel that police may have not taken a missing persons report seriously if they knew about her history of hitchhiking. In August 2014, Pamela and Laurel go down to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office in Central Florida, and they wondered if anyone had ever filed a missing persons report for Tammy Joe Alexander. When the officers check, they see that none was ever filed. So, Laurel and Pamela file a missing persons report. 
In September 2014, a month after the missing persons report was filed, the artist Carl Koppelman sees a new listing for Tammy Joe Alexander. He sees it on the database and realizes that the two faces are the same exact person. He said that he was always making changes to the sketch and constantly studying her face that when he saw the actual image from the missing persons report, he knew right away that it was the same person. He emailed the Livingston County Sheriff's Office in New York, the Hernando office in Florida, and the NAMUS and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Police hear about this and decided to get a DNA sample from Pamela Dyson since they are blood-related. In January 2015, the Monroe County Medical Examiner found that the unidentified body DNA sample matches Pamela Dyson's DNA sample. On January 26, 2015, the Livingston County Sheriff announced at a news conference that they had finally identified the body after 35 years. So now the police's focus shifted from finding the identity to finding the killer. February 2015, the Livingston Police reported that they had gotten more tips now that that they were able to identify Tammy. A Tennessee truck driver gives the detective a development in the case, but it's not public information, so no one knows what the information was. In March 2015, what Tammy was doing at the Rainbow Prison Ministry is released to detectives, but the ministry has been closed, and the husband and wife who started it passed away. So again, we don't know why Tammy was there, and I could never find if the detective ever said what she was doing there or if he ever released it. Um, so no one knows. Another piece of DNA evidence was tested, and it was from a red windbreaker jacket that Tammy was wearing. It was labeled Auto Sports Product in early 2016. The sample they found turns out to be an unknown male subject. They bring in three different men for questioning, and I'm not sure how they thought of these three men as suspects, but they bring the three of them in and their DNA is taken and it's tested against the sample from the jacket. In November 2016, the FBI announced that none of the three males matched the DNA sample from the jacket. On November 2nd, 2020, which would have been Tammy Alexander's 57th birthday, they get another lead. When the Livingston Sheriff's Office released three audio recordings that her boyfriend had, who kept the voicemail he received from her on a cassette tape prior to her disappearing. The description of the male that was given in 1979 when he went into a diner with the girl who is thought to be Tammy. The man was described as a middle-aged white man around 5 foot 9 inches, wore black rimmed glasses, and a tan station wagon. The waitress said that the man paid for both meals and is, you know, he's still considered a prime suspect to the police. 
They also did a composite sketch of the man, and it's still on a lot of wanted posters around the country. And I will have this picture on our podcast, on our podcast, on our podcast, on our Instagram podcast. Yeah, that that's what I was trying to say at Criminal Curiosity Pod. Um, or you can just type in Tammy Joe Alexander in Google and you can see it. But I'm going to sound crazy for this. I know, I know, I know. But the composite sketch looks just like the young version of Bernie Sanders. Like when Bernie Sanders was young. Do you know who Bernie Sanders is? Yeah, that guy. It looks just like him. Now, you know how a lot of people say that the Zodiac Killer is... um. Ted Cruz I mean it's not true but I mean it's just funny that when I see Ted Cruz I'm like oh there's a Zodiac killer but I'm dead serious when I say that the suspect in the composite sketch and young Bernie Sanders are twins you will never you will never say I'm wrong you can't you can't say I'm wrong you you cannot because I showed my sister I was like look at this composite sketch and tell me who does it look like and she said young Bernie Sanders. I think those are the real questions we should be asking. What questions you ask? You know what questions I'm talking about. (laughs) So the recordings released by the police that were left by Tammy, um, the police say that there really is nothing suspicious on the tapes. It doesn't give them an idea. Ugh, I can't talk. Nothing is suspicious on the tapes, but it does give them an idea of the type of person she is. That she's a beautiful, charismatic, and optimistic girl. And maybe, you know, by releasing these tapes, someone would be triggered by hearing her voice and they're like, Oh, I know who she is. You know, so, yeah. So, there are some theories as to what happened to her as to who murdered her and how she got from Brooksville, Florida to Livingston, New York. So we know that she was at the Rainbow Prison Ministry in Young Harris, Georgia, and they did a pollenology on her clothes in 2006 to trace where the pollen came from and to be able to track her movement from there on. The tests were done at a pollenology lab at the Texas A&M University, and they found four types of pollen grains. I did not even know that this was an actual thing. Like, forensics is crazy. I I thought it was like, okay, blood splatter, crime scene investigator, and that was it. No, I didn't know, even know you could test pollen. Did you know that? I didn't. So they were able to find four pollen grains, a Australian pine, oak, birch, and spruce trees. They compared them to the pollen grains in the New York area in 1978, a year before Tammy died. Oak, spruce, and birch trees are in New York as well as many other places in the country, but no oak spruce or birch pollen grains were found in the 1978 controlled sample 
the one that they did in New York, and no birch or spruce trees were located in the general location of where Tammy's body was found around the, the cornfield. I believe that every year they do like a, a pollen test to see like the type where pollen comes from, like what type of trees. I'm not 100% sure, but that's kind of what it sounds like if they did it in 1978. Um, so the spruce and birch pollen grains from Tammy's body came from the mountainous areas of California, which is on the other side of the country. The pollen that came from the Australian pine is a tree that grows in certain locations in North America. It can be found in South Florida, South Texas, some parts of Mexico, the campus of Arizona State University, and, Ariz and University of Arizona. Why do, they, why do they name universities like that? It's like, okay, Arizona State University and University of Arizona. It's like Florida State University and University of Florida. Why? That is a tongue twister but it's the campus of Arizona State University and the University of Arizona and some regions in California. The Australian pine can't survive the New York winter, and the only place where all the pollen from the four different trees it showed a location of was at California, more specifically near San Diego. Tammy had a handmade necklace that was on her when she was found. It was a silver handmade necklace with three turquoise stones in it. And investigators thought it was a replica of Native American jewelry, which was made and sold in the southwestern states. Of course, there is no way to know if Tammy owned the necklace before leaving Florida, but... You know, in Tammy's final letter to her friend, Laurel, she talks about wanting to go back to California. So they said that maybe she could have bought the necklace in California. The tan lines on her body that I mentioned earlier indicated that she was in, in California for a couple of days. Um, because, you know, she's out in the sun, sunny California, and she got the, the tan lines. And then she left to go east. Police believe that Tammy went through the Sierra Mountain region, which had spruce and birch tree pollen. Police find a keychain on her, which came from a vending machine in New York. The keychain was a lock and key, and the locket had a writing that said, he who holds the key can open my heart. And the key was also found with Tammy as well. So, I mean, it would, I guess it would be more suspicious if the key wasn't with her, but the key was with her. Tammy was also wearing tan court. I am messing up on my words so much today. Why? <laughs> she was wearing tan corduroy pants, a plaid button-up shirt, brown shoes, so... I mean, nothing seemed out of the ordinary with her clothes, but the red windbreaker seemed to belong to a man, and the label read Auto Sports Products, and on this jacket was a DNA sample of a man. That is the only evidence? 
that's the only thing that they have from this case is the DNA of a man. So I don't know. <laughs> so now a theory that doesn't sound like the craziest theory, it's the only part in this story that kind of makes sense theory wise. Um, and it's about a serial killer named Christopher Wilder, and they also call him the Beauty Queen Killer. He's born in Australia and moved to America in 1969. He raped 12 women and killed 8 on a cross-country crime spree in 6 weeks in 1984. And he's also a suspect in two statutory rape cases in Florida in 1983. His MO was to spot women and offer them a modeling contract using his background in photography to seem like the real deal. So I guess he would have a camera with him. He's like, want to be a model? And um, he thought he was more believable. So the crimes he committed have taken place in Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Texas, Utah, Arizona, and California. But, get this, in April 1984, Christopher Wilder abducts a 16-year-old girl named Tina Marie Risico, and he forces her to go on a road trip across the country with him and help him abduct other females. They reach New York and he abducts Beth Dodge before killing her and dumping her body in a gravel pit. He buys a plane ticket for Tina to go back to LA and then continues his crimes. Now, this theory came about because of the way he traveled while committing these crimes. And Tammy was murdered five years before Christopher Wiles spree, but he was in the United States during the time she was murdered. They said that he, during that time, he could have been driving across the country and getting a feel of the places just in case he has this grand idea of murdering women. And maybe he ran into Tammy while she was hitchhiking and then he does the same thing that he did to Tina Marie. And there's more. Hold on. There's more. There's more. Hold on. So Christopher Wilder loved racing and he loved cars, NASCAR, like that was his world. And he owned a lot of racing merchandise with the same label that was in the red racing jacket Tammy was wearing, that red auto sports products, which police wondered if the jacket that Tammy was wearing belonged to him. Now, Wilder was also known to use and carry a Colt Python 357 Magnum revolver, and it is a gun that can fire 38 caliber bullets as well. And that was the type to kill Tammy, but none of it was ever tested. Wilder was killed in a police standoff. <laughs> Does that even make sense why it just said? I'm losing my mind, sorry. Wilder was killed in a standoff with the police, so they never got to interview him and ask him about Tammy Alexander. So, police 
I I I'm 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 not 100% sure if like the public formed this theory because police had this theory from early on in the case and then again after they learned about the male DNA on the jacket they were like okay maybe this is a plausible theory but then they tested Christopher Wilder's DNA against the one on the jacket and it wasn't a match but it sounds like a good theory but you got to listen to the you got to listen to the evidence or the DNA ah <sighs> it makes me mad it really does still to this day Christopher Wilder is considered a suspect um until the deputy in charge of the case says that he isn't even though he's dead um when Barbara Jenkins died the mother in her obituary, she listed Tammy as dead, and people wondered if it wasn't an assumption. Maybe her family knew she was dead. No missing persons report was ever filed until Laurel and Pamela did so in 2014. Some people say that her boyfriend Kevin Williams had something to do with it, seeing as he was reportedly the last person to see her. And that he may have learned that Tammy was running away with another guy and decided to kill her? I don't know. I don't believe that. And majority of people believe that her family or boyfriend has nothing to do with her murder. Um, and seeing as she did run away and hitchhike a lot, it wasn't the strangest thing to the family. But I mean, something had to have happened. What happened? For 35 years, Tammy was unidentified, and when they buried her on her tombstone, it was labeled, quote, Lest We Forget Unidentified Girl, November 1979, end quote. Her sister and friend had a service for her where she was buried in the Greenmont Cemetery in Dansville, New York. A funeral home that was in charge of her burial offered to pay for them to change the tombstone to read Tammy Jo Alexander. Around 100 family members and friends and community members, including the police, attended her service. They chose not to move the body back to Florida and kept her in Livingston because Tammy had already been buried there for 35 years. And the police kept their promise to identify her and they cared for her when no one did um, and they cared for her without knowing who she was. Pamela Dyson has encouraged people of missing persons to enter their picture in NAMAS, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, because it was how her sister was able to be identified. And much appreciation to Carl Koppelman because he he was the one to identify her. Um, so so thanks to Carl for working on this over and over and over. Your work is greatly appreciated. Um, so thank you for working on this until there was a break in the case. John York, who was one of the first detectives to arrive at the scene in 1979, who retired in 2013, says that he goes and visits Tammy's grave 
as much as he can all the time and says, quote, I knew it was going to happen. It had to happen, end quote, when he was asked about her identification. Now, it's uh, it's honestly so sad that no one really missed her that much to say like, hey, where's Tammy? I haven't seen her. You know, let me try to get in contact with her. Um, and if something seems strange, let me report it and file a missing persons report. Um, but no one looked for her. Everyone assumed that because she liked to hitchhike and run away, that let's not look for her, you know. Um, all Tammy really ever wanted was to escape the household that she was raised in because it wasn't the happiest. And her life tragically ended by someone we don't know who is. Um, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like, after every case, I always, it just gets me thinking, like, this and that and this and that. But with this case, isn't it weird how we basically just forget about people? Not like we intentionally forget about people, but it just, like, our memory of them just fades. I mean, if you, if you now, well, now in the the day and era of technology, like if you don't hear from a friend or sibling in a while, it would be concerning for me, and I would try my best to find them, um, using social media, a location on their phone, because that is helpful, um, and just through other people. Um, sometimes I wonder if they actually ever did try to find her because like I've mentioned before and like we know she did run away and it was nothing strange but she always came back but this time she never came back for a a long amount of time so I mean after some weeks and months yeah that's concerning um and again, because I have a, re- a revelation after every time I research a case, it's weird how we just forget about people we went to school with, um, and they probably forget about us as well. It's weird. <laughs> um, and it's it's an unsettling feeling um, that this case is unsolved and that no one looked for her. And also the part where I said that people forget about us that we went to school with and we forget about people so that brings me to the end of today's story you're probably like okay this is not solved i know i know it's not solved i'm sorry i really am sorry but i i wanted to do a a case that was unsolved and a case that a lot of people don't know about so yeah so I don't sound happy. <laughs> I really don't. Because it these cases keep me up at night because they're not solved. Like who like it would have gone differently if Christopher Wilder wasn't killed in a standoff with the police. Why did he need to do that? Why did he need to go in a standoff with the police? Why? I don't know. Anyway, um, I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. 
You can follow my Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod, where you can see the pictures of the case behind the scenes or just to keep up with what's going on. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, again with the words, I cannot get my words out today. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It would mean the absolute world. And plus, I would like to know what you guys think of me as a person, me doing this podcast. Um, any improvements, any anything would help. Um, you can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail that I will have in the description box below. It's just at criminalcuriositypod at gmail.com. Um, and please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.